listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, we're in week three of our series called Looking for the True King. As we trace God's promise to give us a Savior King throughout the Old Testament, a Savior King that would one day redeem us from our sins and rule over us for the glory of God and for are good. And one day that was King Jesus and will be King Jesus. And from those promises in Genesis, we're tracing these echoes and whispers of who Jesus is. And last week we ended the book of Judges with the last line of the book of Judges. Judges 21-25 said this, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did, did what was right in his own eyes. Judges is a 21-chapter book about what happens when people make themselves king and throw away any rule of God in their life. Evil results, oppression of people results. And we learn that we must choose who is on the throne of our life. It is either King Jesus or ourselves and can be no other way. And in 1 Samuel begins right here. That Israel is in need of some godly leadership. And God's going to bring this leadership by his prophet, priest, judge named Samuel. But the story actually starts with Samuel's mother. Hannah is barren, and she's married to a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah has two wives. And at this altar, there's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. God had established this thing called a tabernacle where people would come and worship. And over time, it kind of found a permanent home at this place called Shiloh. And in the tabernacle was this Ark of the Covenant. You may remember it from Raiders of the Lost Ark, an Indiana Jones classic. But inside of it would be the Ten Commandments carved in stone a jar of manna from when God fed his people in the wilderness, Aaron's staff that had budded, these reminders that God had worked miracles in order to save and be with his people. And now God's presence in some way dwelt right there. So people would come up to worship there. And on one of these trips, Hannah's weeping. And she's weeping because her barrenness is not just a season, but it's becoming a huge part of her life. And verse 9 says this. It says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. Now Eli, the priest, the guy over Shiloh, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to, get to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah takes her tears, her anger, her sadness, her grief, and her hurt to the Lord. And the Lord hears her. He's the one who can handle all those emotions, all those disappointments, whether it's barrenness or whatever else in our life. That's why we're doing a Lent devotional called Terrain, navigating those ups and downs as we follow King Jesus. And she vows to dedicate her son, the son that will be Samuel, realizing that all of our children belong to the Lord anyways. 
And Eli, the priest, observes her and says this in verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? It's four in the afternoon. Put your wine away. Put it away from you. Which is a great lesson. Lord, may we be the people that when other people see us pray and worship, they think we're drunk. May we be the people who are that dedicated and that real with their emotions before the Lord that just like Acts 2, they get accused of being drunk as they worship the Lord, that we would be a people so raw and so passionate that it would be confusing to the spiritually dull, which Eli happens to be. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drinks and bourbon, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for all along. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Church, pouring out your soul in prayer is a one-way ticket to experiencing the true God. Pouring out your soul in prayer is a one-way ticket to experience the living God who made your soul. He wants the real you and is uninterested in any other version of you. James 4.8 gave us this promise of draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We see Jesus, our king, demonstrate this in his life. Hebrews 5.7 comments on it like this. It says, well, Jesus was here on earth. He offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence, deep heaviness, deep weight for God. Jesus was a perfect man, and he had big emotions to give to his gigantic father. We don't come crying to God because something's wrong with us. We come crying to God when something is right with us, that we realize God actually hears and God actually cares. Your loud cries don't bother God. He welcomes them. It shows humility to come to God with our honesty, no matter how difficult the emotion And Hannah's life is whispering to us about who the king will be, a king who prays to his father with his whole heart. And God answers this prayer, and then Hannah bursts into this big, beautiful, rich song. But there's two important points in the song I want us to see, and they're this. Verse 10 says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the strength of his anointed. And in this song, it kind of opens the book of Samuel a little bit wider that first we see that God is still this ultimate king and judge. He's the only one who will be the judge at the very end. It won't be a parent. It won't be a grandparent. It won't be an ancestor. It won't be any political figure on earth. There will only be one judge at the very end. He is the king of the universe. And second, God will give strength to a humble king on earth. 
his anointed king. The word anointed there is Messias in Hebrew or Messiah. And it points that the kings coming in Israel will be these anointed people that have this oil literally rubbed on them, but they're anointed for this purpose. But it also points to Jesus that there will be a true Messias, a true Messiah who truly can save people from their sins and be king. And because God brings low and he exalts, we should be a humble people just like the king must be a humble king. And this contrast starts between Hannah's honoring life and her son Samuel being this faithful people to the Lord. And then the negative contrast of Eli and his sons who are serving as priests, but they're unfaithful to the Lord. And we learn Eli's sons took too much offering for themselves and were committing adultery. Verse 17 tells us this. It says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They weren't satisfied with what was given for them. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Just a boy, clothed in a linen ephod. And while Eli provides some correction to his son, says stop doing this in chapter two, he doesn't follow through with actually removing his sons. He doesn't actually change what's problematic. And we see Samuel grows up, his mom has Samuel as a baby, dedicates him as a boy, and he's like this tiny boy priest living in the house of the Lord, serving faithfully, and he's growing in favor with God and with men, just as it will say about Jesus one day. Jesus is a boy who lives who stays in the temple extra to teach. Jesus is a boy who grows in wisdom and favor with all. And through a prophet, God actually says this to Eli. It starts in verse 29 in this prophecy of demise. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor, more weight than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. They were taken too much. But I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me, who refuse to give weight to me. The time is coming when I'll put an end to your family, so it will no longer serve as my priests. And to prove that what I have said will come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to die on the very same day. God prophesies and brings this judgment to the current priest, Eli, as Samuel is growing up as a boy. And he does it, he tells him why, because of honor. Honor, that God deserves a weight, a glory, an utmost respect of being God. And Eli has taken this lightly. But not truly correcting and removing his sons, he's chosen to honor his sons, honor his relationship with them more than honor God. And it introduces this concept of honor and glory. We see throughout this early part of the book that weight, the word that's being used is kabod, and it's related to this word kavod, which is glory in Hebrew. And they're going to play off each other over and over in the text to kind of show us that this person was not giving glory to God, instead gave weight to other things, things that didn't really matter. And those who refuse to honor God will be despised by the Lord for refusing to give God his due weight and glory. The New Testament will summarize this idea in Galatians 6, 7 to say that God will not be mocked. And we can see a clear thing here that wicked spiritual leaders 
will not last before the Lord. The Lord won't be mocked. You can't be a spiritual leader and live a double life without it all coming out one day or being judged by the Lord. And this sets in motion the changing of the priesthood and this installation of Samuel as this judge, prophet, priest, leader. We see in Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. It had kind of the spigot had dried up. And the place where God's presence and the place where God's priest was, there should have been a word. There should have been leadership. There should have been a place where God was moving and working, but it had run dry. Verse four, then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. And he said, I didn't call you. Eli told him, you need to go lie down again. So Samuel goes and lies down. He's still a young man. And Samuel says, here I am, just like Moses. It's meant to kind of bring back this this calling when God calls a person and says, here I am. And this actually happens twice more. And on the fourth time, verse 10, the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears or your servant is listening. And then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. And the Lord now tells this boy, this young man, that Eli and his home are coming down, that their family line will end. Samuel faithfully, boldly relays this to Eli when Eli asks, like, oh my gosh, the Lord came. What what did he say? He relays this tough message. And the Lord empowers Samuel to start leading from Shiloh with this renewed way for Israel. We see this as the prophecy of demise is fulfilled and the ark is about to take center stage in this story. In 1 Samuel 4, verse 1, it says this, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. God is speaking and moving again. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they're kind of the arch enemy at this time in Israel. They're the the bad guys in the story. They're who Israel is fighting and hates and all the things. And they encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek, and the Philistines drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. That's a lot of people. And when the people came back to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. That's those little angel statues you saw on top. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So they go out to this big battle and they lose big. And they ask the right question. Why did this happen? But the elders actually ask it to the wrong people. They ask it to each other instead of the Lord. If they had seriously gone to the Lord, they probably would have been impressed that, well, you lost because of your unfaithfulness to me. But instead they asked each other and they came up with this manipulation of God. Hey guys, let's go get that, co- that Ark of the Covenant. Let's get that box, golden box. And we're just going to ram down the hill with it into the next battle. And surely the Lord will destroy everybody. That's our hope. We will force God's hand to do something 
for us. And here's what happens in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. They fled every man to his house. And there was a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. 30,000 people die in this foolish plan. They tried to manipulate God. It didn't work at all. God didn't defeat their enemies, but let them lose this battle in a tremendous way. So much sore that the very ark that they brought in, the Philistines take back to their country. See, God won't be manipulated by them, and he certainly won't be manipulated by us. We cannot force God's hand in life. We don't earn points with God like the Chipotle app. We're not little kids that get tickets at Chuck E. Cheese and try to turn them in. That's not how God works. It's an actual relationship with the living God. He won't be tricked. He won't be fooled. He can't be manipulated at all. We are to be used by God in his ways, not try to use God for our ways. And Eli's reaction is so telling. Verse 17, the messenger who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, just like the prophecy said. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years. And we see Eli falls literally off his chair. He wasn't at the battle. He's sitting at the gate and he falls over backwards at hearing about the ark, not about his wicked sons. We're kind of led to believe he's not too worried about them, but that the ark has been taken, he dies. And that word heavy comes up again. He's crushed by his own weight. He failed to treat the Lord weightily as he should and therefore dies under his own weight his own choice to glorify himself and his family over God. And his daughter-in-law hammers the point home, caring about the ark and the glory and not her wicked husband who's died. She names her son Ichabod, who's born at this very moment, which literally means where is the glory? Where is the heaviness? Where is the meaning of life that comes from God only? Where is the greatness of God? Because she says it's departed or it's in exile. It's left our land. The thing that made us a special people was that we had the true God and now he's left us. And the message is clear. If we choose to honor ourselves in life, we will quickly be forgotten. There's a vapidness to our own life. Without the weight of God in our life, without the due glory of God in our life, our life will not mean that much in the end. It is God who gives weight and meaning. And is due the glory. And the ark is captured, yet chapters 5 and 6 and six in the book of 1 Samuel make it clear that while the ark has been captured, God remains undefeated. Israel got defeated, but this ark is doing just fine. See, the Philistines captured the ark, and as one does, they brought it to their pagan temple. They housed it under Dagon, their big pagan god. I don't know if he's made of stone or iron or bronze. Who knows what he's made out of? But the night goes by and the statue appears knocked down 
dismembered and the head chopped off. It freaks all the Philistines out. They come to their temple and they move the ark in and now their idols on the floor. Because remember, the battles are theological. It's my gods versus your gods. That's why I capture your stuff. Well, God's stuff just smoked Dagon. So therefore, they start moving them around. They have a little counselor like, let's just, let's just start moving the ark. And everywhere the ark goes, people start bursting out and cancerous tumors all over their body and panic spreads through the town. So they start moving the ark of the covenant like a hot potato. They're like, well, we'll just send them here and we'll send them here. And then bang, outbreak of cancer and panic. Bang, outbreak of cancer and panic. So much so that they went from thinking they had beaten Israel and captured the their God to then offering gold, gold like sacrifices and offerings to, to this box and worshiping it and saying, how could we get it away from us? How quickly can we get it back on Israeli territory and just be done with the thing? So they returned the ark to Israel. And Israel laments this episode of the ark. It leaving their land and and then coming back and then not being at Shiloh anymore disrupts their religious and cultural life so much that 20 years pass and it kind of brings this big moment of repentance, this renewal that happens under Samuel. And Samuel, like the good leader he's presented, he steps right into the moment to lead them back to the Lord. And it's an amazing turn after the great dive of Judges and the rough beginning of this book to see this happening. Look with me in chapter seven, verse three. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. We're turning to the Lord from something. We had our faith in something. We're gonna put it in something else. Turn from the Ashtaroth among you. That's a pagan goddess. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines the people conquering you, we could have solved this all along. Verse four, so the people of Israel put away the balls and the Asheroth and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord and they fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged, he ruled the people of Israel at Mizpah. To come to God truly, we must repent fully. To draw near to God truly, we must repent fully. And that's how a godly Samuel leads them and leads us today. To repent includes turning from our sin to God and includes a confession. It's not vague. It's an actual thing that we can name and say, Lord, I have done this or said this or thought this or served this, and now I'm going to turn and name it. I'm going to worship you instead. You, to repent, you must forsake your sins, forsake your idols, forsake the foreign gods. And sometimes the foreign gods are, are, are pretty obvious things. Maybe it's, maybe it's substance abuse or violent behavior or pornography or sexual immorality or lying or stealing or jealousy or coveting. Sometimes they feel pretty obvious. Things that are just right in the Ten Commandments. And sometimes those foreign gods go a little deeper. 
We make idols out of our reputation. So we're never really honest with anybody. We make idols out of a need for respect. So we come across as demanding and do away with friendships or workplaces that don't respect us enough. We make idols out of comfort, so everything hard doesn't have to be obeyed. We make idols out of control, so we struggle to trust. We make idols out of acceptance, so we're slaves to other people's opinions and can't rest in the Lord's opinions of us. We make an idol out of power, and we seek opportunities to be over people, to have control or sway over everything. There's a lot of faces to the foreign gods. Amen. Anything we love, obey, worship, or serve greater than Jesus is an idol. It may not be wood and stone and in our kitchen, or it might be. Nice luxury kitchen, the money that it represents, the status it represents. Maybe that's it for you. I don't know. But to get real with y'all, another way to consider idols is anything that would be taken away from you that would cause you to no longer want to live or no longer worship Jesus. That's your idol. And for me, it's been at least a half a dozen things, maybe 60 dozen. It's been financial success out of college. It was all cool signing up for ministry until I finally looked around and say, oh, I have the least amount of any of my friends a couple years out of college. I've had an idol of family. I had a moment that I had a friend had a horrible car accident and it, traumatic to his family. I thought, well, what if that was me? What if it was Elena and my kids? Would I still worship Jesus? I'd like to think I'd say yes. But the more I thought about it, I had some repenting to do. That yes, that'd be sad and traumatic, but Jesus would still be good. I've had an idol of an easy life where things just got harder and harder and harder and I was just mad at God. Why isn't this easier? I have a right to an easy life, a comfortable life, God. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm like, good enough, right? I don't have a right to an easy life. I have a great Jesus. I have had to repent of an idol of reputation. There was a time in my life where I just felt like my reputation was just on fire, on fire for things I did and things I didn't do just feeling slandered and cornered and just saying, Lord, I'm just going to trust I'm underneath your wing and I'm just going to keep going because I don't really have an option. Work through the idol of, of, of having a perfect approval rating as a pastor. I've had to work through the idol of having all the answers and realizing I'd, I'd rather not have all the answers and just trust Jesus. But here's the problem. Every idol we serve, we're going to spend all of our time worrying about that idol and not worshiping Jesus. It's kind of another one of the other thing. Every little idol we set on our cardboard, on our car dash, our kitchen, or maybe it's on our phone or whatever, we set up these little idols. All the time we spend attending to people who don't love us, idols that don't serve us, idols that can't do anything for us, is time we don't worship Jesus. When worshiping Jesus leads to freedom and an idol always leads to slavery of sin. And here's the good news, church. Just like Israel was as lost as you could be, worshiping literal pagan gods of their enemies. How does that even make sense? 
God was waiting in intimacy for them. For anyone who truly repents, confesses, and turns to the Lord, he is there and he's waiting. Cry out loud like Hannah. Cry out loud like Israel. Cry out loud like Jesus. And the Lord will be there and he'll be with you. The Philistines heard of this gathering at Mizpah and they came for war. They say, they're all gathered up there having their religious festival. Let's go. Let's just get them all right now and win the war. They saw an opportunity and Samuel saw it coming. The people heard it coming and he led Israel to this time, cry out before the Lord, trust the Lord and head into battle. And the Lord wins the battle, smokes the Philistines, brings peace to the land. And Samuel, the good leader, sets up an Ebenezer stone to say, remember this and start building your faith with these building blocks of things you know are true and you've experienced from God. If you want deep, strong faith, you're going to have to identify where God has been faithful to you. He has been, but often we forget. We don't pay attention. We move too quickly through our life. And we say, I don't know, God's not really done anything for me. When the pattern of scriptures is say, no, put an Ebenezer in the ground, start writing it down, start putting stones on your windowsill, put them in your yard. I had a guy who bought special stones and would just carve it in the side of the stone, the word of what happened in the year. I don't know whatever weird, wonderful thing you need to do. Get a tattoo. Remember what God has done for you and start to build a deeper faith that you say, I know this has happened. It's true in his word and it's true in my life and I'm ready for what's next. Amen. I'm all fired up. Now I got to look down. Samuel was a very good judge. He understands who God is like so many of the judges before him didn't. He leads all the days of his life. He brings the word and the prophecy of the Lord. He leads them in faithfulness. He judges. He's actually caring for the people like, like Deborah. There's this moment where he's just judging and being their leader. The military victories follow as they trust in the Lord. Yet Samuel, like Jesus to come, is rejected eventually. Even the good judge. Chapter 8, verse 1, we see his sons fail like Eli's. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways and turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Good leaders lead for the glory of God and the good of their people and not themselves. To use your power to pervert justice before a holy and just God is evil. That's, that's the word for it. To use your power for ill-gotten gain before a holy and just God is evil. That's the word for it. It's not a mistake. Neither is a mistake. And the people rebel, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, his home, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. Judge means rule. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel's like, what have I been doing this whole time, guys? And Samuel prayed to the Lord, just like Hannah. Takes all the sadness, rejection. Imagine serving people, 
for that long and then just being tossed. Heartbroken Samuel is rejected. He goes to the Lord, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they've done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. The Lord lets them know this is nothing new. This has been the deal. It's been the drop since Egypt of people complaining, hating, wanting to go back, complaining about the wilderness, not listening in the promised land. This is just what people do. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Israel's presented as a stubborn people. And to be honest, we too are a stubborn people who easily chase after other gods. We too need a great king who's more than a good ruler, but a savior who can change us from the inside out. God gives them over to a human king. He'd made an allowance for this to happen in Deuteronomy 17, but he gives them to a human king to show them their great need for God as king, that none of the kings will ever lead up, will ever live up until we get to King Jesus. So Samuel warns them using the language, the same language that they accused his sons who took bribes. Look at the words. He says, the king will take your sons for soldiers. He'll take your daughters for servants as bakers and perfumers and cooks. He'll take the fruit of your fields and vineyards and orchards. He'll take the servants and your livestock. And after the speech, Samuel says, and in this way you shall be slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of the king whom you've chosen for yourself. The person you asked for will make you cry out, make you remember Egypt. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And the warning here is meant to reflect and help them think about the difference between a human king and having God as king. It's very intentional. Do we have a cute chart? No cute chart. We don't need one. When God is king, he gives you children. When you have a human king, he demands your children. With God as king, he gave milk and honey of a promised land. With a human king, he'll take the first fruits of that promised land. With God as king, he blesses them to be a great nation. With a human king, he takes a big old cut to be the big old king of this nation. With God as king, serving the Lord leads to freedom in your life. With a human king, serving the king leads to slavery, less choice, more rules in your life. And even with this big warning, the people answer in verse 19, but the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, that's not how it's going to be. You don't know, Samuel. But there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And that's the heartbreaker. They rejected God as king so that they could have the perceived certainty of a human king who would go out and fight their battles like all the other pagan nations. They're saying, make us like the other nations. 
they've rejected God. And Samuel, Samuel faithfully takes all this sadness to God. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And next week, we'll dive in to that very first king, who's a king very much like the other nations in King Saul. And in these eight chapters that we've covered in 1 Samuel, it points us to Jesus in some important ways. First, Jesus prays like Hannah. It's a model for us all. Jesus doesn't tolerate wicked leadership and always speaks truth. He's a king we can trust. Jesus, like Samuel, listens to God, God's voice, but Jesus doesn't need a calling from God. Instead, he recognizes the Father's voice and is always followed. Jesus is powerful like the ark, but his power doesn't cause cancer. But in the Gospels, he's healing cancer and healing people all the time. It's power with a different purpose. Jesus, too, is rejected in the end by Israel's elders, like Samuel. Jesus is king, but he's a king who doesn't take. He gives his own life for his people. And who ever heard of a king that dies for his people? To bring this to us here at Citizens, I want to ask you the same question I've asked you the past three weeks. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? And, and there's three ways to think about it this week. How are your prayers? How are they? When's the last time you drew near with tears over your pain? Do you believe God is waiting for you there? Because I bet he is. Your tears are precious to God. He says he collects them all in a bottle. That There's an open invitation to let it out to pour your soul out, as the scripture says. Two, do you find yourself trying to manipulate God or seek him earnestly with open hands? The truth is you cannot love someone and manipulate them at the same time. You cannot love someone and manipulate someone at the same time. Manipulation is trying to force another's will for your own good where love is serving another for their good. Jesus is the embodiment of this love who serves us unto death. If you find yourself being manipulative horizontally, you can bet your bottom dollar you bring that same behavior to God. You're not someone else horizontally and then different vertically. If you find yourself being manipulative in a vertical sense, you can bet it's happening horizontally with people you probably claim and want to love. The third way to ask if Jesus is king, do you live for what is weighty in life, namely the Lord and his purposes? I want to encourage you to not live for what will blow away. That will just blow away like wind or chaff, here today, gone today. There's a place for entertainment. Life, but life is more than being entertained or distracted all the time. There's a place for eating and drinking and nourishment, but we know life is more than eating and drinking, fam. There's a place for work to be fulfilling, but what does it mean to work for the weight of God's glory in our life, not for our own glory, no matter what we do? 
can we toss our lesser idols, the less weighty things of approval, comfort, control, power, reputation, and pick up the weightier thing of God's glory and the great blessing it is to our life. Jesus lived for what is weighty. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.